You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week six. Today's teaching is on Exodus 25, 1 through 27, 21. Thanks for joining us. All right. Good morning, friends. It is such a blessing to be with you today. Um, Just curiously, how many of you feel like you need some help with all of this? All right, so just so you know, uh, we're going to have several weeks uh, talking through the tabernacle, so hopefully we'll all get there together, okay? Um, If you're listening virtually, I want to say welcome to you. I'm glad you're joining us as well. Uh, We'll be looking at a lot of passages and slides and images today, so you'll want to have those in front of you. These can be found on the WBF resources page of our website. So we have been on quite the journey with the Israelites so far, haven't we? We've seen them escape slavery, wander in the wilderness, make some mistakes, and covenant with the God of the universe. They're learning so much about themselves and most importantly, about God as they go. Today, we will continue the journey with the Israelites. This journey is less walking and more heart work as they continue to respond to God's call and desire to dwell with them. As God shepherds his people, they will continue to learn what it means to live in this covenant relationship with him, set apart to live with and serve him and one another in community. In the tabernacle, we see the plans God made for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God. These plans culminate with the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. I think it's easy for us to gloss over what a sacrifice this would have been, but it's so important that we remember. God longs to dwell with his people And he makes a way to do so that meets them right where they are at. At this point in the journey, the Israelites are a nomadic people. So whatever structure they build would need to be easily transported. The tabernacle was a movable tent with very precise instructions about the materials used and the dimensions and structure of the tent. God is a God of details. The plans for the tabernacle are like a map or a design plan, a copy of the throne room of heaven. From the outside, the tent would have looked like, well, a tent, but it was anything but ordinary. The innermost layers were the most precious materials with the least precious materials on the outside. This holy structure looked like a mere tent Nothing special that would make someone take notice. But inside, God's beauty, holiness, and redemption was on vivid display. Doesn't this make you think of Jesus? We are told in Isaiah 53, 2, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. The tabernacle serves such a beautiful purpose It shows both God's desire to dwell with his people and his desire to fix a broken relationship with his creation. Sin separates us from God 
And in the tabernacle, he creates a way for a holy God to live among his people again. Through the tabernacle, we understand his call for us to be holy, and we see a foreshadowing of his plan of redemption. All of these things I just mentioned, the chasm that sin created, God coming to dwell with us, his plan that we be made holy, what does all of this remind you of? Or rather, who does this remind you of? All of these purposes of the tabernacle will find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we study through these chapters, we will do so with an eye to our Savior. In the tabernacle, we see a clear correlation to Jesus and what he accomplished during his life, death, and resurrection. Exodus 25.8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Lindsay talked about God's imminence and transcendence a couple of weeks ago. The transcendent God is coming to imminently dwell with his people in close relationship with him. The glory the Israelites saw on the mountaintop made them stand far off. But now God is making a way for them to come near so that he may dwell with them. We see this come to full fruition in Christ Emmanuel, God with us. God desires Israel's hearts and he desires ours too. Let's not lose sight of this sweet truth that God longs to dwell with us. He is calling us home to fulfill our greatest need, which is to be with him. In your homework, we asked you where the Israelites got their beautiful supplies for the tabernacle. The text tells us that they got the supplies from their plunder of the Egyptians. This just seemed so strange to me, because when I think of plunder, I think of pirates. But it wasn't quite like that. We are told in Exodus 3, and again in Exodus 12, that God had a plan for the supplies for the tabernacle, too. He provided the Israelites with favor from the Egyptians who willingly gave a lot of gold, silver, and materials. It was as if the Israelites had plundered them. God is a God of details. A group of us recently went up to serve the crossover students at a Young Life camp in New York. One of the camp employees was telling us how to properly set the table, that we should have the silverware and the plates a thumbnail distance away from the edge of the table. And the rest of the items on the table also needed to be set just so. They cared about the details. God cares about the details of his dwelling place because that's where his glory dwells and where he invites his people to be with him. The Israelites were careful to build the tabernacle just as God instructed. Let's imagine now that we're going to have a design meeting with the builder. If you hired a builder to build your house, you would definitely want them to listen to you and to take great care to build your house to your specifications. How much more so when the God of the universe is drawing up blueprints for his dwelling place among man? Let's spend some time now stepping through the first eight parts of the tabernacle. It's important to note that every Israelite in camp would have been able to see the pillar of cloud and fire over the tabernacle. This was a very visual reminder of God's presence, 
much like today we can see a fire burning from miles and miles away. The entire fenced area, including the tabernacle, was about half the size of an American football field. To put that in simpler terms, take a second here to look around the size of this room. So the tabernacle would have been about as wide as it is from me to these doors, and about two times as long as this room is. So it was pretty big. The fence was made of white linen, which would have been in stark contrast to the brown of the desert. This makes me think of the purity of God. As the Lord gave instructions to Moses, he laid out three main areas of the tabernacle, the most holy place, the holy place, and the courtyard. Each place held sacred objects and sacred rituals. As we go through the objects and rituals, we are moving farther away from the Lord's presence. So the actual tent structure was separated into two places, the holy place and the most holy place. And in the most holy place, this is where we find the presence of God. The sacred objects housed in this area were the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the covenant between God and his people, the mercy seat, which symbolized the covering through the blood of the lamb, and the veil, which symbolized separation from a holy God and an unholy or sinful people. Sacred rituals in this area would have included that only the high priest could enter this room one time a year, and the priest offered the blood of a sacrificed animal to God in this area. Now, stepping further away from the presence of God, we go into the holy place. This area signified the work of Christ. In this area, we can find the golden lampstand, which symbolizes light and life. And the priest kept the lamps burning all day long in this area. The table for bread, which symbolized presence and provision, where priests brought fresh bread weekly to the table. And the altar of incense, which we won't talk about today. Lindsay will cover this next week. Moving farther out into the courtyard, this was the outer fenced area that surrounded the tabernacle. So the courtyard is this, this big area, the white fenced in area that I just talked about, and the tabernacle is within this area. In the courtyard, we find a wide gate where the Israelites presented sacrifices and offerings and where the priests received and blessed the people. We find the bronze altar, which signified justification. This is where the priests would offer sacrifices. And the bronze basin, which signifies sanctification, um, which again, Lindsay will talk to us about next week. In your homework, we had you fill in the chart to help you gain some understanding of the details of the tabernacle. You may want to turn to page 44 of your workbooks to follow along. We'll start at the top of the chart that you filled out and we'll work our way down, okay? So we're going to start out today with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant can be found referenced in other places in Scripture as the Ark of Testimony in Exodus 25, 22, the Ark of the Covenant in Numbers 10, 23, or 10, 33, excuse me, the Ark of God in 1 Samuel 3, 3, the Ark of the Lord God in 1 Kings 2, 26, 
the holy ark in 2 Chronicles 35.3, and the ark of your strength in Psalm 132.8. The ark of the covenant was found in the most holy place. A thick veil separated this area from the holy place. Only the high priest could enter this area one time a year. The ark was made of acacia wood and covered with gold. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where God met and talked with Moses in Exodus 25, 22. And it, this was the first item God gave Moses the instructions to build. The Ark was the central focus of the tabernacle and eventually in the temple as well. The Ark was the place of God's presence and it was there that the people could meet with God. He would be able to oversee the covenant contained within and make sure that it was observed by the people. The law was under his feet. Psalm 132 verses 7 through 8 say, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. As Lindsay and I were talking about the ark, she told me that in Eastern, Eastern tradition, idols were on footstools. The stool would house the covenant between that particular God and the people. Similarly, this ark is God's footstool. It houses the covenant between God and the people, and his presence will come and dwell over it. While God cannot be contained, he was gracious to use cultural items that the people could easily identify with. Three very special and significant items were housed within the Ark of the Covenant, and all three of them point to Christ. The first is the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. These reminded the Israelites of God's holy nature, and Jesus came to fulfill this law fully. The jar of manna reminded the Israelites of God's provision. In Christ, we have the bread of God who gives life to the world. Aaron's rod comes later, but will eventually be housed within the ark. Sitting on top of, but separately important, is the mercy seat. We didn't separate this out as part of your homework this week, but we will separate it out today as we share. The mercy seat was one of only two solid gold structures in the tabernacle. It had two winged cherubim facing each other with their wings spread out over it. Cherubim are guardians of God's glory, just as they were in the Garden of Eden and as they will be again in Revelation. They protect his throne. The mercy seat was where, one time a year, a priest would Appeal for God's grace by sprinkling the blood of a sacrificed animal. The mercy seat is over the law. Remember what I just said was in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is how the unholy people could stand before a holy God and ask for propitiation or payment for their sins. The wrath of God was satisfied by the death of Jesus. He is this for us today. The law condemns us, but Christ's atoning blood covers us in mercy. He upholds our side of the covenant. He is how we can stand before a holy God and receive grace, our sins paid for. He is our mercy seat. The table for bread, 
or the bread of presence, was found in the holy place, across from the golden lampstand. Priests would place special bread on this table weekly on the Sabbath day. The God of details had very specific instructions for both the preparation of the bread and how the table needed to be arranged. The bread symbolized God's provision and presence for his people. The regularity of this offering reminds us of God's consistent provision and presence, just as he consistently provided manna for the Israelites. God promised to be Israel's God and king, to be with them and protect them, to provide for them. This table of bread was yet another visual reminder of God's covenant with his people. Culturally, meals were used as a means of sealing a covenant with God and also for sealing an agreement. Remember how the elders ate a feast on Mount Sinai after the covenant with God was confirmed? God dedicated this bread specifically for the priests to eat each week when new bread was put out. They ate the bread as representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, remembering the covenant God made with them on Mount Sinai. Israel would have seen bread as life-giving and sustaining nourishment. They would have understood that God was the ultimate source of this sustenance for them. There is wine and bread on the table, just like in the Last Supper, as Jesus prepares to become our deliverance. Today, we experience this sweet gift as we break bread and partake in communion, remembering what Christ has done on our behalf for our salvation. The golden lampstand was found in the holy place and was the second solid gold structure in the tabernacle. The mercy seat was the only other solid gold structure. The lampstand was made of 75 pounds of solid gold. So this wasn't some little like side table lamp we're talking about here. This thing was heavy. The lampstand resembled a tree with candle holders on the tops of each branch that were shaped like an almond blossom. The tree signifies life. Does this remind you of another tree of life? Reminds me of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were in close fellowship with God. The priests used high-quality olive oil, likely the first press as the olives were crushed. The Israelites provided this oil as an offering, and the priests were responsible for keeping these lampstands burning continually. Imagine how dark the holy place would have felt with the layers of the tent and the thick veil blocking all outside light. This light would have felt precious. The light from the lampstand would have reflected off all of the other gold items in the room, casting a beautiful glow. It would have highlighted the smoke in the air from the altar of incense. It was a reminder to the priests that, the God, that God was the light, of, the light source and the source of all life. There are several verses where Jesus is referred to as the light of life and the light of the world. The work of Christ brings light to our lives as sin is illuminated and we repent. Knowing the Lord's will for our lives is that we would be saved and sanctified. We need God's forgiveness to be brought into closer fellowship with him. This is the life we need. We learn in the book of Numbers that the tabernacle was found in the middle of the camp, centrally located, so that all the people could see it. It was a place where God as spirit dwelled with his people. The tabernacle, 
tabernacle structure had very precise instructions from our very detailed God. The most precious materials were found inside, starting with linen with the finest quality, then a goat's hair covering, a ram skin dyed red, and finally, a covering made from animal skin. The outer layer being made from animal skin or leather would have protected this structure from the elements. Each time I read about the tabernacle, I'm struck by the craftsmanship it would have taken to create this tent. I'm also struck by the maintenance it would have taken to care for this structure as well. Okay, so now we're going to do a little bit of a journey here. And we're going to think about the Garden of Eden for a moment. After sin entered the world, Adam and Eve moved in which direction? Right, they moved to the east. Going east indicates movement away from God. Going west then indicates movement toward God. God instructed that the tabernacle be set up so that the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God, would be on which end? The west. So the opening of the tent would have been to the east, calling his children home towards the west, back to the presence of God. Notice, too, that there is only one opening We have just one way back to God, too, and his name is Jesus. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The veil separated the most holy place from the holy place. Similar to the cherubim guarding God's holiness and the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, The veil between the most holy place and the holy place guarded God's presence and protected sinful man from death in his presence. The thick veil was seven and a half feet tall and was made of the finest linen in blue, scarlet, and purple dye. Some Jewish traditions say that the veil was as thick as a man's hand. The veil hung on four acacia wood pillars. The representation of the cherubim were skillfully crafted into the linen. There was no opening in the curtain, so the priest would have to lift this entire heavy curtain one time a year when he would go into the most holy place. The most holy place symbolized what humans lost in the garden, access to God's presence, which was now housed in the tabernacle itself. The veil was both a physical and spiritual reminder of the separation from God. Remember what happened to this veil as Jesus took his last breath on the cross? It was split from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, indicating that we now have freedom to come into God's presence through Christ. The bronze altar was found in the courtyard. It stood seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, so it was a pretty large structure. There were several different types of offerings given at the altar. Animal offerings represented payment for sins against God and others, complete surrender to God, and peace with God and others. Grain offerings were given to God in an act of thankfulness. The burnt offerings were the only offerings not consumed by the priests for nourishment. A proper sacrifice was one without any flaws, 
Once the priest approved the sacrifice, the worshiper would lift their animal or their offering of grain onto the altar. As the people surrendered and offered sacrifices, the weight of their sin was replaced with peace with God and sharing of a feast. For the animal sacrifices, the animal was lifted onto the altar, their horns were bound, and the worshiper would lay his hands on the animal's head to signify the transfer of sins, a life for a life. After the animal was put to death, the blood was collected in the basins below. The wages of sin is death, and only shed blood can pay for sin. This would have been a gruesome scene. And if we take a serious look at our own sin, it too is gruesome. Jesus became this for us once and, all, once and for all, the ultimate life for a life. In Christ, we have a true and better tabernacle. Colossians 2.9 tells us that the fullness of deity dwells within him. We no longer have to offer animal sacrifices for God to draw near. In the workbook, the writing team wrote, Our penalty wasn't simply excused. It was fully satisfied in Christ. Dear sisters, let us not lose sight of this precious, extravagant gift. I would like to pray today to close out of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Would you please join me? Lord God, we thank you that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, may this be true for all of us today and in the days to come, by the blood of Christ and the power of your spirit. Amen.